James is made up of 108 verses. 54 of them are imperatives. An imperative is a command. Let's go! Come on! Man, it is so fun to be back. It's been like a great restful season, but I have missed you guys, and I'm so pumped to be back. And uh, I appreciate that. We are kicking off this series tonight. And uh, thanks, Mom. And uh, we're going to start the book of James. And if you're joining us in El Paso or Scottsdale for the first time, Indianapolis is kicking off. We've got several different Ports Live locations, Austin, wherever you're joining from, or if you're just tuning in online or everybody in the room, uh, we are kicking off this series. We are so stinking pumped for what God is going to do both tonight and in this series. Let me start off by inviting you into my world a little bit when I was growing up. I'm one of four kids. So I've got three siblings. I've got an older brother, older sister, younger brother. If you have siblings in the room, you know that... Whoever your sibling is has a direct impact on your growing up. You know, they're kind of, especially if you're the younger or you're younger than one of them, the way that they blaze a trail through high school or the just, you know, bridges that they burn all the way through high school directly impacts, oh, you're so-and-so's little brother, you're so-and-so's little brother. And because I was third, I had an older brother and an older sister. And a lot of people have an older brother where they're like, man, I just lived in his shadow, star quarterback. And he, that was not my older brother. My older brother was like, I hit puberty at, 20 and he was in the choir. So I didn't have that. <laughs> but I had an older sister who cast a shadow so big, it would be hard to even describe, specifically as it related to sports. By far the most athletic person in our family was no one with a Y chromosome. It was her. She was a phenom at track and field. She um, ended up, oh, they're already throwing a picture up there. There you go. All right, let's do it. And she, um, at 16 years old, I mean, she was like a phenom. She won state. She had full-ride scholarships to almost every school in the country. She broke records. She, in a huge high school, she broke records. So everywhere that I went, it was, oh, you're Angela Marvin's little brother. You guys can throw that down. <laughs> you can keep it up. Uh, at 16 years old, like the entire town, or at least that's kind of how I remember it in my mind, on a Friday night came out, and there were so many people that were there to see her break the five-minute mile and run it in four minutes and change at a 16-year-old. I mean, she was just a phenom. She won state multiple times. She went on to Baylor, still holds lots of Baylor's records, won the Pan American Games in high school. She um, uh, won the national championship her freshman year. I mean, she's just like a huge shadow. So literally growing up in high school, everywhere that I went, it was, oh, you're, Dave, you're Angela Marvin's little brother. Oh, this is Angela Marvin's little brother. Coaches would show up from all, every major SEC school, every school in the country show up and, oh, you're Angela's little brother. And this huge shadow was cast of being in the shadow of this sibling that everybody in town knew. Now, what does that have to do with James? Well, James, if you're not familiar with it, he lived and grew up in an environment where he also experienced an enormous shadow that would have been cast because of one of his siblings. His sibling was not just famous, you know, in the town that they grew up in. His sibling was the most famous person who's ever lived because his sibling was Jesus. Now, Jesus had half-brothers. One of them was a guy by the name of James, who didn't always believe in Jesus, but he eventually did, and he wrote the book of James. But what we're going to do as we journey through the book of James is hear from someone who spent time with you. I mean, think about it. If you could spend time with, with Michael Jordan's best friend or his brother growing up, what that would have been like. We're about to hear from the half-brother, 
because they didn't share the same dad, had the same mom, the half-brother of the most influential person of all time, the guy who grew up when they went on like, you know, we're going on vacation, we're taking the camels, going to see the cousins. There's James, there's Jesus. The guy who shared a, likely shared a room with Jesus because houses back then, it was like one room, so everybody shared a room. The guy who would have, you know, he's at Jesus' bat mitzvah. Whenever they're like, oh yeah, party hat, let's do this. James is there for all of that, every interaction, every scenario. I mean, think about even the pressure that would have come. I don't know, you know, what your siblings are like, but maybe you have like somebody who was like, dude, this, they're just, they never do anything wrong. How much pressure would James have felt when he's like stealing cookies from the cookie jar and he's like, I didn't do it, somebody else did it. And J- Jesus is like, I know all things, James. I know that you steal the cookie. <laughs> or he's out there like macking on some girl at school and like, what's up, shorty? How you doing? And Jesus is like, James, I thought we talked about this. I mean, how much pressure <laughs> would it be to grow up in that type of shadow? And James, like I said, although he didn't always believe, and I'll cover that here in a second, he eventually came to believe, my, he's not just my brother, he, he's the Messiah. And he writes the earliest piece of the New Testament. The letter that we're about to jump into, a little context, is written by James, I already covered that. He wrote to Christians spread all throughout the Roman Empire, basically all throughout the world. And he wrote the earliest letter in about 45 AD, which is about 15 years or 10 years after Jesus was resurrected and went back to heaven. And James writes this letter and he writes to Christians who are trying to figure out how do I live out my faith and I'm walking through and people are attacking me for my faith and the world around me just doesn't really like Christians. How do I live this out? And James writes and he covers the topic we're going to dive in tonight. That's the first of really 14 different topics. We won't cover, you know, all of them every single night, but he launches in and he begins to cover this topic. We need to know about James as you track through, and I really want to encourage you, if you're new to reading the Bible or you've been reading it for a long time, to journey with us through this book. We're going to go through every single verse. We're going to try to unpack and help as we do explain how to study the Bible. It's one of the most common questions we get. Man, how do I study? Come to the ports. I feel like I can understand it there, but I'm by myself. We're going to walk through and just explain and hopefully give handholds on how to practically and personally you to journey with us. We're even going to have some resources in a couple weeks that we'll be releasing, but we're going to journey through and listen to the whole truth from the half-brother of the Son of God. Tonight, we're going to cover a topic that is as relevant as it's ever been, and it's the topic that James starts with, which is trials. When life throws something at you that you didn't ask for, that you didn't invite, that you don't even necessarily want there, whether it's sickness of someone in your life, could be a breakup, big and small. Your latte wasn't the white temperature when it came out, or you found out someone in your family is sick, like really sick. You lost the job that you would just banked everything. You thought this for sure is going to be it, and it didn't happen. You got let go for reasons you don't even fully understand. The relationship that you thought, oh, this was, they were the one. Now there's just someone, and it broke off, and it broke part of you. What do you do in those trials? So tonight we're going to journey as James launches in because trials and pain, difficult things have been around for a long time and God wants to use those things. So tonight we're going to talk about what is the point of trials? What is God doing in the midst of them? And three things really just to know about in the midst of this. So we're going to start in verse 1, chapter 1 of James. If you have a Bible... You can flip open there. If not, it'll be up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, you can get one at the Welcome Center uh, if you're here in Dallas and you have a free gift that uh, we've got some available there for you. But we're going to start in verse 1, chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he introduces himself 
to the 12 tribes, which if you know the Old Testament, it's basically a name for, it's like saying the 50 states of America. It's 12 tribes of Israel. So Jewish Christians spread all across the nations. Greetings. James, unlike other writers in the New Testament, Paul gives a long intro. Hey, this is me. This is all I'm excited. This is going to be so great. Lots of intro. James doesn't do that. No fluff kind of guy. Dives right in. Says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance or the ability to continue going or enduring faith. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be complete or mature and complete, not lacking anything. Immediately, he starts with something that's very counterintuitive and very not natural for us. He says, hey, I want you, whenever you face trials, to consider it joy. Why would you say consider it joy, James? Whenever things are falling apart and life's not going on, who in the world considers that joy? That's not normal. Like, how could he say such a thing? Is it because he just, you know, glutton for punishment, hit me again? No. Because in the verse, he tells us, there's a reason why in the midst of difficulty, hardship, things that for the rest of your life are going to come at you. Unlike most people or many people or some people in the midst of the trial, the cancer comes back, something just never thought could happen to you happens. And they begin to walk away and they step away. James says, no, 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 no. In the midst of every trial, you can have joy because there is a potential in the midst of that trial for God to use it to bring about good. Specifically, he says, it can produce something in your life. Every hardship, every breakup, every painful season of singleness, every disappointment is an opportunity where God wants to use that to produce something. What does it produce? He says, a persevering faith, an enduring faith. And that is the thing that brings about a maturity inside of your life. That God uses that to mature you and I in the midst of difficult things. The first idea is the potential of trials, which is it has the potential in every trial that you face. It can either be one, you hold on, you don't lose your faith. You say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to walk through this. I'm going to cling to you imperfectly. And when you do that, James said, God begins to develop an enduring a faith that doesn't stop. It keeps going. And that is how someone matures, grows. One of the ways that God uses trials is just like at a gym when you put strain on your muscle. The only way for you to get stronger, more in shape, is to go through pain. But it's a pain that has a potential to take you somewhere. And James says, distinct from many other things, if you want to be someone who's mature in their faith, who's steadfast, who doesn't walk away, who doesn't fall away, it's going to involve trials. Sometimes trials that you cause, others cause, no one wanted, God allowed And he's saying, if you will hold on to your faith in the midst of that, God will use that to bring and mature you and mature me. Unlike other things, what do I mean by that? You can read a bunch of Bible verses this week. You read the whole New Testament. Is that going to make you mature? No. That's going to make you smarter. You could obey every verse in the New Testament this week. Is that going to make you more mature? Nope. That'll make you obedient. Distinct from many other things. What is the path towards being mature, growing up in your faith? It involves trials and walking through them. And James says, when they come, and this is so relevant because I've just heard it story after story after story for the last 12 years of doing this, where people, and you've heard it, you've heard people in the midst of, they walked away from their faith, and now they're trying to come back to it, but at some point in their age, their parents divorced. 
Their mom got sick and she never came back. Things seemed to just spiral out of control and they found themselves going, I don't even know if I believe this anymore. For one reason or another, they just walked away. And you know what I've never heard? To the person who says, you know, I'm just walking away because it's trial, so I'm stepping away from my faith. I've never heard the person who does that years down the road or even months down the road say, you know what? I was following God and then I got news that I just couldn't handle. Things just didn't seem to be going the way that I wanted. So I was like, you know what? I'm out on this. I'm not doing this anymore. And they walked away. And you know what happened? Everything in my life got better. I walked away from God. My relationships got better. My self-control got better. My happiness got better. Anxiety went away. Never heard it. I've heard hundreds, if not thousands, who said, man, I let that trial push me away from God. And it also pushed me away when that happened from peace, from joy, into addiction, into depression. And James says, trials are going to come. Notice he doesn't say if they come. He says when they come. But there's potential because God wants to use it to grow and mature your character. There's a famous story about Michelangelo. Michelangelo is an artist in the 1500s. He created many famous works. One of the most famous ones was a statue called the Statue of David. He took this single block of marble, huge block of marble, and out of it, at a time where there was no machinery, there's no electricity, there's nothing fancy, he took it in a single hammer and a chisel, and he chiseled away, and he created the Statue of David. It was a marvel. He had an interview or a conversation with somebody where they asked him, how were you able to make such an incredible thing? I mean, today we could do this because we have, you know, all types of machinery that could do it, but just with a hammer and a chisel, he was able to produce that. His answer to how was I able to do that is just, it was simple. I chipped away everything that didn't look like David. In the same way, trials is one of the hammer and chisels that God will take in our life and he'll allow to chip away and conform everything in your life and in my life that doesn't look like Jesus. That's what the Bible calls sanctification. What's sanctification? It's what trials do. It's what the Christian life is. It's a word that means becoming more like Jesus. And one of the ways that that happens is through the hammer and chisel of trials in our life where God will chip away. How does he chip away? I mean, you think about it. You know what happens in trial? A lot of the ways that I'm finding my identity and how much I make and the job that I have, I lose that job, I'm confronted with the fact that I don't even know who I am because I don't have that anymore. I find my identity or I find myself and I find my confidence in how I look and all of a sudden, man, I... I got hit with an autoimmune disease. I, I can't, I'm not going to look the way that I wanted to look. And I'm confronted with the fact that, man, I put too much stake in what other people think about how I look. Trials come and people will turn and you discover like, oh man, I'm really coping with something in an unhealthy way, whether it's marijuana, whether it's a bottle, maybe it's just dysfunctional relationships. And God in the midst of those trials said, don't, don't let go. Don't abandon. Hold on. And in doing so, he's going to chip away at everything that doesn't look like Jesus in your life and in my life. It's through pain that we often grow healthier. In other words, some of the most painful times are the things that bring about health. My son, on a Tuesday night a couple years ago at this point, my wife called me, and it was a Tuesday. I wasn't teaching, but I was in the green room. I was hanging out. got a three-year-old son, and at that point, like a one-year-old daughter. She calls me and says, hey, our son's finger just got slammed in the car door and his nail is completely off and his finger is messed up. I've got to take him to the emergency room. 
So it wasn't one of those situations that I could be like, all right, go get him, champ. I was like, all right, tell me where to go. I'll, see, I'll meet you there. I'm not teaching, so I'll join him. We go to the hospital, and in my mind, as uh, <laughs> I'm already here. I'm going. In my mind, I was like, his finger's falling off. Okay, all right, drama mama, let's go. And um, just not knowing what to expect. And, and then I get to the hospital, and I see, and, and it was like his entire nail, his thumbnail was like totally off of it. And as a three-year-old, you're, you're like freaking out and just, you're already... Uh, as I've said before, tears are already on standby. So it's just like <laughs> constantly. Doctor comes in, he evaluates it, says, hey, can I talk to you for a second? And he says, we're going to have to stitch that entire thing up. And in order for us to fix, you know, and put back together his thumb, um, I'm going to have to stick a needle into a thumb, which is not pleasant for anybody, let alone somebody who's, you know, 36 months old. And if I'm going to do that, I need you to hold him down. And so I had to sit there and hold a three-year-old who couldn't understand anything, who is, is negotiating like, I don't even need the thumb. I don't even want the thumb. I don't even find Please, stop the needle, please. And I'm having to hold down his arm. It's so heartbreaking. And hold down his arm and allow some pain to take place so that his thumb could heal. And in the same way, it's often through painful moments that healing, growth, and maturing happen, distinct from all other categories. And God wants to bring that about to refine you and I's faith. I love, again, like he said, it's not if you face trials, it is when they are coming. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. There's gonna come a day, I'm gonna make everything new, but from now till then, there's going to be pandemics, there's going to be breakups, there's going to be divorce, there's going to be tremendous pain. It's not if, it's when. This is why the prosperity gospel is so crazy to me. The prosperity gospel, if you're not familiar, is this teaching that, that you know, millions of people buy into that pastors in positions like this say things that are not biblical where they're like, if you follow God... This year, everything that you need in life is going to go well. You're going to be wealthier. You're going to be healthier. You're going to be spealthier. It's going to be great. And people buy into it by the millions. Some of the most significant influential pastors in America preach this nonsense. That's a not biblical idea where Jesus said, it's going to be rough. You're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death over and over and over. Everybody's going to die. Everyone. The death toll still at 100%. No one's escaped it other than Jesus. And that man said, you are going to face trouble. You won't always get the job. You won't always be healthy. Your spouse is going to die. Think about even the pain represented in the futures of this room. Like if, if we could look down in a moment and go through everything that's in front of you, hundreds, if not thousands of you will die of cancer or your, your wife will, or your husband will. Some of you will never be able to have children because infertility is a thing. Some of you are going to bury your child there is tremendous pain that's represented even in the future and certainly in the past here. And anyone who promises, man, if you just read enough Bible, that's not going to happen, is a liar. And they don't teach the Bible. The Bible says pain is coming. And James says, not if it comes, when it comes. You need to be ready. And my heart tonight is to say, you need to be, and I need to be ready. It's going to come. Don't let go. Don't walk away. Lean in. There's a difference. If I was to come up to you, and if you know that something is coming, it makes it a lot easier to be able to handle it and take it than if you don't. In other words, if I was to take 
one of these guys that looks pretty bowed up up here. And I was like, all right, hey, come up and say, let me pump you, punch you in the stomach. You'd probably be like, all right, dude, you look like you're not going to throw in that hard. I'll take it. And I punch you in the stomach and you're ready for it. You're like, all right. Thank you, sir. May I have another? If <laughs> I was to walk up when you're talking to your girl outside, and I was like, boom, as I walk by, you're not going to be able to breathe because you weren't bracing yourself because you didn't know it was coming. James is saying, it's coming. You need to know that and be ready. And if that makes you anxious, you're on planet Earth. So I'm just telling you reality. But in the midst of that storm, you and I have a hope as followers of Jesus that we get to hold on to knowing there's a heavenly father who's going to allow that to be a potential to use even the most painful moments to work for good in our life. Some of you, the pain in your past and the stories, it may be even the opposite. Like you just, you've walked through pain and one of the ways God used it and grew you and matured you was he gave you a great example of what not to do. You were raised in an abusive home. Your parents had a terrible marriage. And even that can be a thing that he uses to say, man, I'm going to show you by seeing the example of what not to do, what you're going to do. That, that's the story that I have. I grew up in a, a broken home, parents divorced, didn't ever see godly marriage modeled out and learned a lot of what it looks like to be a dad, but even what not to do. I don't know your exact story and the specifics, but I do know that in every trial and every pain, there's potential that God wants to use to mature and to bring about good in your life and my life. And James says, not only in every trial can there be potential to produce enduring faith and maturity, but he then goes on to what to do in the midst of a trial when you just you can't connect the dots on what God's doing. He says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let me stop right there. Think about that sentence. If any of you lacks wisdom, it's like saying, if anyone needs oxygen, it's like, what? If any of you lacks, if anybody, does anybody not lack wisdom in this room? And if you raise your hand, you are the person who for sure lacks wisdom because you're so not wise, you don't even know that you lack wisdom. I mean, that applies to everybody. But he says in the midst, he's going somewhere, he's connecting it to this idea of trial. He says, if you lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives, I love this, who gives generously to all. He gives generously to all of his children without finding fault. He doesn't hold to the person who's walking through a trial and in pain. And they don't know what to do. They can't connect the dots on what God is doing in the world. And they're just having a tough time. And they go to God and they ask him. And, and they haven't had their quiet time. They messed up with their boyfriend. To that person, does God hold it against him? Nope. He gives generously. Like when I was reading this text, I just got this image. This is probably weird in TMI, but of like a grandpa that's handing out ice cream that just goes on and on. He just gives generously two scoops, seven scoops. Or Oprah, you get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car. And James says, that's what your heavenly father's like. Gives generously to all without finding fault who ask him. But when you ask, you must believe. Believe that God is good, that he loves you. He's at work. And not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. He's blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. The person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. He incorporates an analogy that really fits where he brings up the topic of a storm. This idea of a storm and the wind and the wave and things blowing back and forth. And in the midst of the storm, James says, as you walk through trials, you need to know there's going to come times where you cannot connect the dots. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom, biblically the definition of wisdom, is the ability to see things from a bigger 
perspective, from a heavenly perspective. That's what wisdom is in general. I mean, when we talk about, you know, the reason we associate older people with wise people is because we assume, hey, you've lived a lot of years, you probably have been through something like this before, you have a bigger vantage point than I am. The reason you're wiser than a 12-year-old is because you've been down the road and you're like, yeah, man, I know how this ends. Junior high, those zits are going away. It's gonna be okay. You have a higher perspective. Wisdom in general and biblical understanding of wisdom is the ability to, to see life through a heavenly perspective, to see the trials, to see singleness, to see breakups, to see disappointments through a heavenly perspective, a higher perspective, and in light of that, live life. And James says, if you're in the moment where you can't connect the dots on how could God be using this? In the midst of those storms, we begin to ask questions, where are you, God? What are you, why would you allow this? How are you doing this? What am I supposed to do now? And he says, when you're in those places, You should go to your heavenly father who gives generously providing wisdom to those who ask. The second idea from the text is the prescription for trials. The prescription James says in the midst of the trials is to go to God in prayer and ask for wisdom, for help. Talk to God. Don't turn to self-help. Turn to God help. The self-help industry is insane. You can't help yourself, but God can. In other words, if you could help yourself, you already would have helped yourself. That's why there's an endless list of on and on and on self-help books that are top sellers every single year because people keep putting out like, oh, you can, you can, you can. And yet there's no like one fix, like, oh, this one actually worked because you and I can't help ourselves. You may be able to like moderate changes and get on a keto diet, but in terms of actual peace and walking through trials, walking through life, you don't need self-help. You and I need God help. And James, I love this. He says, you have a heavenly father who gives generously. He loves you. He said, call out to him, talk to him. He wants to generously give in response to that. One of the things that having kids has like grown in me or really showed me is how God's love for me and for those of us who are followers of Christ, who are called adopted like sons and daughters, his love for me is something I, I, I don't know that I even have begun to understand <laughs> Why do I say that? Because as someone who has kids, like the amount that I love my children, I, I don't even know how to describe it in words. And like the things that I would do and just the, the uh, ways that I just care about them, I'm concerned about them, I would do anything. What they care about, I care about. I, I, I can't even describe it. Like I, I have a two-year-old daughter whose name is Monroe. And, um, and she is just like the best. We call her the joker because she's constantly laughing and making jokes and she's just like out of control and probably going to be really concerning someday with boys, but <laughs> she, um, she got this game recently for dropping her pacifier and it's called Pretty Pretty Princess. I've never heard of this game before. Who's heard of this game before? Anybody, girls? Pretty Pretty Princess? Or she would call, because she can't do her R's, you want to put Pretty Pretty Princess? And um, <laughs> it's just like the best, man. I'm like, please, please do this for the rest of your life. <laughs> and uh, and it, I'll give you the game, guys, because I didn't know what the game was until we got the game. And it's, it's a game where it's like this board and you spin it and, and you get a piece and, and there's all these jewelry pieces and each person has a color. So you got blue and pink and green. This is going somewhere too, by the way. And, um, and you spin it and if you land on the earring, you get the earring. And if you land on the necklace, you get the necklace. So by the end of the game, you're like, <laughs> you're decked out. <laughs> you're decked out in like plastic jewelry. And uh, I'm just glad there's no pictures out there or anything. But I'll sit there and she constantly wants to play. And I would say this, you know, very, very confidently, prior to having kids, I can say going 30 years of my life, there was never a moment where I was like, you know what I could really go for right now? 
some pretty, pretty princess. And um, <laughs> that just never crossed my mind, never had a thought. It's not really the most exciting game. But I could sit there and play with her for hours on it because of how much she loves it. In the same way, the picture the Bible gives of your heavenly father, because I know there's a lot of people who didn't have a good father around. Maybe in one of them. It's a father who loves you so much. He doesn't just want to play a board game with you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to call, or he wants you to call out to him and help. He wants you to know how much he loves you. And he said, no matter what you're walking through, you can turn to me. You can invite me for help. And I give generously to my kids. You need to know that. And James would say, call out to your father as you're walking through a trial. Ask him for help. Ask him for wisdom. As I said, wisdom is the ability to see things from a higher or more eternal perspective. Because a lot of times we just can't connect the dots between, man, what are you doing, God? How does this fit into your plan? He's promised in Romans chapter 8 and Ephesians, or Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, he's working all things together for good and he will make everything beautiful in its time. That verse is shocking to me. I will make everything beautiful in its time. Someone dying from a drunk driving accident, beautiful. Someone you know experiencing sexual abuse, beautiful. Someone dying of cancer in their 20s, beautiful. There's a lot of things that I look at and I'm like, I don't know how you're going to do that. My wife, we... Another thing that happens when you get married, you get rugs. <laughs> and um, men, you just, you probably should know this. Like, like, there's something about women and rugs. I didn't know. And uh, like every three months, I'll come home and my wife will have like a new rug out. She's like, it was on Facebook Marketplace. I sold the other one and I got this one. And it just looks so great. It just feels so fresh. It just feels so clean. And I'm like, man, huh. Never would have gotten that. So I feel like I have bought so many rugs in my life. And man, you should just know, when you get married, you are, you are going to be investing in some rugs. You know what's interesting about a rug? There's one side where everything is vibrant and beautiful, and purposeful. Like the work of someone who's making a beautiful tapestry. And then if you flip open the rug, especially depending on the rug that you have, you see another side where there's frayed edges and things sticking out and it's dull colors and it just doesn't look like anything beautiful. I think a lot of times in life, the reason why it looks that way for us is because it is that way. And we can't always connect the dots. We can't always see it until you see it from the other side. And there will come a day when God says, man, I promise, I'm, I'm making everything beautiful in this time. And one day you're going to see, and I know it looks like frayed edges. I know it looks dull. I know it looks like how could this possibly be used for good? But even more incredible at making, or incredible than someone who makes rugs, I am weaving together a tapestry and using even the broken things for good. And I'm inviting you to ask me for wisdom, to see it from the other side to see it from a heavenly perspective. When you're walking through those moments and trials, to not let them push you away from me, push you towards me and ask me for help. 
And James says, when you walk through, you need to know God has invited you and he gives generously to those who ask him. If you're walking through a trial tonight, I just want to encourage you before you leave, just to invite God. Maybe you're on the last song. Hey, God, will you help me? I'm just struggling. How can this make sense? Maybe it's a breakup. Breakups are freaking horrible. Maybe it's somebody's really sick in the hospital for COVID. Maybe it's something much smaller, something far greater. I don't know what it is, but to just say, God, will you help me connect the dots? I'm inviting you. Would you give me wisdom to handle this situation? Would you help me right now? Would you take away the cancer? And if you don't, would you help me to connect the dots? Because I feel like this is a frayed edge and I don't want this to drive me from you. Will you help me? And that's a prayer. James says, man, I know my big brother. That's a prayer his father loves to answer. Finally, I'm just saying, hey, every trial, there's potential. And every trial, here's a prescription. It's called prayer. He then goes into and finishes a promise about trials. It's the third idea. Believers in humble circumstances, that's poor. Your translation may have poor. They ought to take pride in their high position. But if you're poor, then you have a high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation or their low position. Since... They will pass away like a wildflower. He's talking about both of them. For the sun rises in the scorching heat and withers the plant and its blossom fails or falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test of time, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. James, what are you saying? He just laid out, hey, Every person who's poor should take pride in their high position, that God has allowed them to live this life struggling and walking through the trial of being poor. Every person who's rich should take pride in their low position because God hasn't given them the gift of walking through these challenging times. What are you trying to say, James? He's saying poverty is going away, riches are going away, trials are going away, and the person who thinks that meant, in that day and age, they would have thought wealth would have meant that God is blessing me and that um, I'm, you know, forever I'm protected from those things. And James is going, you're not protected from anything. Riches are going away. This life is a vapor. James is going to say later in the same book, the Psalms call, uh, again, life being a vapor. What's a vapor? A few weeks ago, snowmageddon, you go outside, you breathe out, and you can see your breath forming right there. Instantly, it's gone away. That's what the Bible says your life is. You're going to spend millions and billions and billions of years in eternity. This life is a vapor compared to that. And James says, dude, the minute you die, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're poor, you're richer than you will ever be. If you're rich in this life, you're infinitely richer than you've ever been. And this life is going to fade away. It's temporary. Keep going. Don't let go. Blessed is the one who holds fast in the midst of the trial. The one who will receive the crown of life. Don't let go. And the promise of trials is that they are temporary. They're going away and they will not remain forever. Don't lose heart. Don't let go. Suffering won't last. And one day, everything broken in our world, Revelation chapter 22 said, will be made right. And if you're a Christian, the good news is this is as bad as we'll ever get. I don't know if your life right now, you're like, dude, everything's great. Kind of like hurting my vibes right now. Or everything in your world is terrible. The good news is if you're following Jesus, this is your hell. It will never get any worse. Only up from here. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is your heaven. It's only going to get worse. 
And it won't get worse because God doesn't love you. He loved you so much, he died on the cross for you. You. Whatever you think you've done, whatever, like, you're like, oh, man, this is kind of good. I kind of like this. I need to really get right with God some more. And, you know, but, you know, I don't think, I, you know, I could go to heaven. You can because God, on the cross, paid for your sins. The message of Christianity is not good people go to heaven. You really need to try harder. Why didn't you read your Bible yesterday? I don't think, you know, God knows about the fact that you smoke, you know, outside of the school that one day with Beverly. That stuff doesn't matter. He knows all that. He knows everything that you think would keep you out of having a relationship with God. And he died for all of it in your life and in my life and in every life that's in this room. He's a God who said, every sin you've ever committed, I died for sins you don't even know you're going to commit this Thursday. Paid for it. Not because of how good you are or how much you've done or you trying to follow him or do good things. That will never earn you a relationship with God. Accepting the free gift of Jesus on the cross, dying for you. Jesus, I receive, I, I believe. The Bible says, whosoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in Jesus, you paid for me. Not whoever behaves for Jesus. Whoever believes and if you've never had a moment where you've said, I, I don't think I'm good enough to earn God's love. I, I, I'll never get there. You won't. You'll never get there. But you can accept what he did for you and for me on the cross, dying. Say, God, man, I accept that. I'm not, I, I don't even know fully how to do that, but I, I'm going to trust in what you did for me on the cross. You'll have eternal life. And this world is your hell. But if you don't, this world is your heaven. And James says, to those who are believers, hold on. If you're rich, you're poor, the trial's going to weigh. Whatever you're walking through right now, it's on a shot clock. Whatever hardship you're facing, whatever pain you're feeling, whatever sadness you're holding, it's not going to last. Don't let go. It's coming to an end. And while it's here, God will use them in your life and in my life. There's a, a famous... A uh, woman who's a, an evangelist, or she just has a, a large ministry named Joni Erickson Tata. Joni, when she was 17 years old, was swimming at the friends with some lake, or swimming at the lake with some friends. And, uh, and while she's there, you know, they're all diving in the lake, and she did what all of, many of us probably have done hundreds of times, which she ran and she jumped in the lake headfirst. Only the spot that she dove into, there was a cement pillar, and she broke her neck. And she was paralyzed from that day to now, in the 1970s. And that terrible trial pushed her into the arms of Jesus. And she's traveled all over the world and she's just spoken about how despite the fact that I'm in this and I'm a quadriplegic, I can't move my arms, I can't move my feet, I can't move anything but above my neck, God is good and he's used it and I trust him. So powerful. Larry King, who passed away in January, had a show for years and years. And on there one time, he interviewed Joni Erickson Tata. And he was just kind of amazed with her and fascinated by how someone could be so professing and yet not profess like, hey, if you believe Jesus enough, he'll let you get up and walk. But I believe Jesus so much, and whether you, I walk or not. And he was just kind of perplexed by that. And he had her on and he interviewed her. And at one point he asked her, are you excited to get to heaven and one day be able to walk? And here's what she responded with. If I could take this wheelchair to heaven with me, standing next to my Savior, Jesus Christ, I would say, Lord, do you see this wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble. 
And there's a lot of trouble being a quadriplegic. But you know what? The weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. Thank you for the bruising blessing it was, for this severe mercy. Thank you. I think a lot of us would say, I want to feel closer to God. I know I would. And I want to be more like Jesus. But if someone asked, do you want to suffer more? I think I'd say, not if I can avoid it. And they would say, those are the same questions. It's one of the routes that God grows us. We find him most near. He's in the midst of trial and suffering. And James is saying, don't lose heart. It's going to be worth it. Let's close with this and then wrap up about James. My One thing that's like fascinating to me is um, the fact that women have more than one child. And uh, as curveball as that sounds, like, that's so painful. And the fact that they go all the way through that, like, I, I, you know, my wife clearly has carried the heavy lifting as it relates to birthing. And I still, I'm like, oh, man, oh. There's a friend of mine who's an elder on staff named Mickey who says that women uh, are, men are stronger, but women are tougher. I think that's so true. Men may be physically stronger in general. And um, <laughs> somebody's, that's going to be the one comment. Somebody comes up and is like, look, I've won bodybuilding four different times. And I'm like, oh. And women are tougher. And, um, and I, I think that's so true as childbirth. But there's something about just an amazing gift of moms where they're like, man, even though I went through all that pain, it's worth it. It's worth it because now I have this child on the other side. And the same thing, I'm like, I, I would do it again and again. Because despite the pain, it's, it's worth it. And James is saying, despite the pain, it's worth it. The Bible says, I consider this present suffering not worth even comparing to what awaits us. Think about that. It's not even worth talking about. That's what he's saying. The worst thing you could walk through, it's not even worth talking about. It's not even worth comparing. It's not even worth mentioning it. Do you know what is ahead? And that's hard to reconcile for me at times. But that's with James, who spent time walking eyeball to eyeball with the savior of the world, his half-brother, said it's not even worth comparing. Don't lose heart. Don't let go. He's at work, and you can trust him. I mentioned, and I'll close here with, with I think, the thing that ministered me, honestly, the most this week preparing this message. I mentioned that James had not always believed in Jesus. We're told if you read the Gospels, there's so many different occasions where his family thinks he's crazy. In other words, growing up, when, you know, Jesus would be like, I'm the son of God. James wasn't like, yeah, it's my brother. Hey, he's the son of God. He was like, oh, my brother thinks he's the son of God. This is so awkward. All of his brothers thought that. In Mark chapter 3, it, it, we're told that there was this occasion where Jesus was teaching and he's telling these things to people. And it says that his family, when they heard it, they went to take charge of him because he th they thought he was out of his mind. John chapter 7, it says the same thing. His brothers were like, um, oh, Savior, yeah, you should go to the big city, old Savior boy. And it says because they didn't believe him. They had not believed. And James walked, and despite seeing all these incredible things, he just thought his brother was weird. He didn't believe. 
And I was telling my son last night, we do story time, and we've transitioned from doing dinosaur stories to Jesus stories, which feels like a parenting win in my book, at night. And, and we were, I was just preparing this message, and kind of in the middle of it, I was like, hey, do you want to hear the story of Jesus' baby brother? And as a five-year-old, he did what probably some of you did, which is like, Jesus had a brother? It's like, yeah. I said, James was his name. And James didn't always believe in Jesus. And he loved his brother, but he just didn't think he was, you know, anything special. Thought he was different and unique, but not God. Not God's son. Which is, I mean, side note, it's pretty normal. Am I right? Anybody in here that they're like, there were a couple times growing up where my sister, uh, Sarah, like, I was almost like, son of God, maybe. I mean, it'd be a little challenging for most of us to be like, yeah, yeah, I could get there pretty easily. I mean, I, my brother is a straight-A student, and uh, it's pretty understandable that he was like, man, I just, I, I know him. He's awesome, but not God. And then something happened. His brother that he had tried with his other brothers to, like, get away. Dude, you're crazy. Come back home with us. His brother was arrested. He was arrested because he was starting this, like, they called it a cult, or they started this little movement called The Way, and they arrested Jesus. And James is going, man, I knew something like this was going to happen. I knew this would happen. We should have done more. We should have been more forceful. We should have got him home. He's now being arrested. And then things take a bad turn, and they put his brother Jesus on trial. And he may not have believed he's the son of God, but who in here is like, man, I, I want what had to be the nicest person James ever met. I want him to be killed? That's my brother. No. Surely this is going to stop. I mean, he, he's got to be able to stop this from happening. And he has his 33-year-old brother crucified, which would have been like electrocuted outside of the city walls. It was reserved for the worst of criminals. He has what is such a shameful way to die happen to his older brother. What emotions go through you in that moment? He didn't know the end. Like we sit on this vantage point, and we're like, he knew the end. Three days later, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. He didn't know the end. No one did. No one thought he was going to rise from the grave. Like we see the Bible through the lens of today. We're like, oh yeah, they all knew they gathered around. They probably had a big tailgate. They're gathering around on Sunday outside of it. And they're like, wait, did I see a movement with that stone? Okay. Oh, here it comes. Ten, nine. No, none of that happened. He's going, my brother is dead. How could this happen? Three days later, something happened that no one thought would. That tomb rolled away and Jesus defeated death for him, for you, and for me. And as he went around and he rose from the grave saying, I pay for every sin in all humanity, red, yellow, black, and white. All of them are precious in my sight and all of them I gave my life. And he went around and he eventually ascended to heaven. But before he did, this, this was so powerful to me. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're told what Jesus did. He had this like short window where he came out of the grave and, and he, he showed up to a, a small groups of people. You know, we're one of the first people that he shows up to. 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us that, hey, he rose from the grave and then he appeared and he appeared to Peter. He goes up and of course, Peter's the leader of the disciples. Of course, he's gonna be like, Peter, I'm back. And then he goes and he appears to the disciples. Of course, he's gonna, and those are his guys. Who does he appear to? Whose name is mentioned next? James, the little brother of Jesus. 
that Jesus, despite the fact that James was not looking for him, had not believed in him, Jesus never stopped looking for James. And he shows up. What did that conversation look like? Because that was the one that changed everything. And he went from, I don't believe in him at all, to my brother is not just my brother. He's the Messiah. He's my Savior. Where he shows up and he says, James, it's true. Everything has always been true. The reason why you thought it was different, because I was. The reason I didn't look like dad is because he wasn't my dad. The reason all of it, it's all been true. I'm your Savior. I'm the Messiah. I love you. I just died for you. And I don't hold against you that you didn't believe in me. And James, in that day, everything changed. And he went from a person who didn't believe at all to leading the church in Jerusalem. When Paul writes in Galatians, he says, the pillars of the church are Peter and the brother of our Lord, James. He went on to eventually be martyred and thrown off a building for the sake of spreading the gospel. What's the gospel? It is the good news about Jesus And in a moment, the savior of the world, the brother he grew up with, everything changed. And how we saw trials changed because how we saw Jesus changed. And whether he was ever looking for his brother, his brother never stopped looking for him. Some of you in the room tonight, you need to know, God, whether you're looking for him or have been, he's never stopped looking for you. And the moment you're going to change your perspective on trials is the moment you change the way that you see Jesus. He's not just some man. He's not just some person that was written about. He's the savior of the world. And if you will put your faith in him, you're going to live forever and ever and ever. And whatever trial you walk through, James would say, don't let go. It's going to be worth it. Don't let go. Don't let go. He's the king. He's with you. Let me pray. Father, I pray for anyone who's never put their faith in the son of God savior of the world, the king, the one they were made by and made for. The name above every name, Jesus. I thank you for just the testimony of James, personally, even how how almost emotional and powerful it is to think that this brother that had no belief in you, that You never stopped running towards and running after and even dying for and that you have poured that same love and that same pursuit towards all of us. I pray for anyone who's never accepted the fact that you are the king, you're the risen one. You don't expect them to earn their way to you. You died so they could have eternal life by trusting in you, that tonight would be their night. I pray that as we journey through the book of James, you would minister to our hearts and we would hear the full truth by your spirit about what it looks like to walk with you. Thank you that you have preserved this incredible book. And I pray that you would use it to minister deeply to all of us listening in the room, online, and in all the different locations. We worship you. You're our king. You're the risen one. You're the Messiah. You're the savior. And we declare and believe that and sing that now in song.